Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to move our discussion into the opioid realm. We want to talk about what opioids are, how our bodies naturally deal with pain, what are the receptors that naturally occur in our body to handle pain, to recognize pain, and what are the medications both that we can give IV to help manage this and also what our body releases to be able to manage that pain. And then we want to talk about the non-opioid pain management. So what are things that we can use either as adjunctive therapy to the opioid pain management, or if you're somebody who wants to do completely opioid-free pain management, what are things that you can do to avoid using opioids? And that's the conversation that we want to do today. So for the first half of this, or really the first couple minutes, we want to focus on the anatomy of the opioid receptors in the body, what they are, how they actually operate, and then what types of medicines or medications actually will agonize those receptors that we can give to cause that opioid response. Like Colt mentioned, we're going to start with the anatomy just to get a good baseline so that when we're talking about these different medications, we really have a clear understanding of where these are working. When we are speaking of opioid receptors, there's several opioid receptors in the body. Mainly, we'll think of the mu, delta, and kappa receptors. Those are the main three that we typically think of. They're located throughout the brain in the periaqueductal gray, locus ceruleus, and the rostral ventral medulla. In the spinal cord, you see those in the afferent neurons in the dorsal horn. And then the sensory peripheral parts of the body as well, you'll see these receptors. The mu receptor is a G-protein-linked receptor. So when you activate this, this will inhibit adenylate cyclase, and this decreases the cyclic AMP production. Remember, this results in less calcium entry into the presynaptic neuron. We mentioned this when we were talking about our neuromuscular blocking conversation that we were talking about when you have calcium, this is going to directly affect how much neurotransmitter is going to be released. So if you have less calcium that's entering the presynaptic neuron, then you're going to have a decrease in the neurotransmitter release. Activated mu receptors also will increase the potassium outflux in the postsynaptic nerve membrane. The reason this is important is because it's going to make it harder to reach the threshold for stimulation, which will just cause the continuation of the pain signal. So if we can increase that threshold, then it's less likely that that stimulation is going to continue down that pathway. When we're talking about these different receptors, now let's think about what does this look like throughout the rest of the body? So the mu receptors can cause bradycardia. It can shift the CO2 response curve to the right. It decreases respiratory rate and increases tidal volume. You'll see this many times with the opioids that you give the patients. Then you see these really decreased respiratory rates, and then you see these really large tidal volumes. We've seen this, especially maybe in PACU or as you're getting ready to wake a patient and give a little fentanyl towards the end of a case, and you really see this change in the respiratory status. Other effects that it would have on the body, intracranial pressure will increase if the CO2 increases. 
you can see meiosis, nausea, vomiting, decreased peristalsis, increased biliary pressure, urinary tension, and pruritus can also develop. These are just some of the main things that you typically will see with the mu receptor that is stimulated. Delta receptors cause respiratory depression, urinary tension, and you can also see pruritus here as well with the delta receptors. With the delta receptors, the endogenous form that our body will create to react with the delta receptor is going to be encaphalin. I should also mention with the mu receptors, the endogenous form that we are going to uh, be producing is called endorphin for the mu receptors. Finally, the kappa receptors can cause sedation. They can cause hallucinations as well, meiosis, diuresis. Kappa also has anti-shivering. This is something that we really utilize in the PACU, especially when we're trying to stimulate these kappa receptors specifically to help with a patient who may have a problem with shivering after surgery. You should also remember the endogenous form here is dynorphin that is going to be what our body is going to secrete to bind to these kappa receptors. So next, let's jump into some of the synthetic opioids that we can give to these patients to be able to stimulate these receptors. So we're, we're targeting those three receptors, the mu receptor, the delta receptor, and the kappa receptor. And some of these medications are going to work more on one versus the other. Typically, most often, we're trying to target the mu receptor. That's, that's the most common one that we're targeting with most of these medications. But again, just know that each of these opioids that I'll be talking about here very soon do have different forms of affinity to these three receptors. So let's talk about potency from most to least. And again, this I'm not going to talk about every single opioid that is available on the market, but some of the main ones that we might see commonly used in anesthesia, I want to at least touch on here. So potency from the most to the least the most potent is going to be sufenta, followed by fentanyl and remifentanyl are, are pretty equal. Then you have alfentanyl, and then you have hydromorphone, followed by morphine, and then meperidine. So sufenta, like I said, is the most potent of these opioids that we can give, specifically referring to the mu agonist. So as I mentioned, mu is the one that we're most often targeting here. And again, sufenta is the most potent for that mu agonist. And I'm not going to go through all the details of all of these meds just to keep everything brief here, but we at least want to touch on some of the things that make each of these drugs unique. Uh, and you can, again, decide when you want to use some of these in your practice based on these unique characteristics. What I love about anesthesia is there's so many different ways that, that we can perform anesthesia. It's just as much as an art as it is science. And so when I go through some of these medicines, obviously each person has a different way they like to use these. So again, just keep in mind that I'm not giving everything there is to know about these, these medications, but at least some touching points to talk about. So morphine is a prototype opioid agonist, and it is the least lipophilic opioid that is used on this list that I talked about. So why, why is that important? Why is it important to have less lipophilic? So lipophilic is the idea that you uh, are able to go through a lipid membrane. So if I give a medicine that is highly lipophilic, it'll cross over by lipid membranes, specifically the blood-brain barrier. And so if I have a medicine like morphine that is the least lipophilic, that means it's not going to be likely to cross that blood-brain barrier compared to the other medicines. And so for that reason, it's less likely to cause CNS depression because it's not crossing over into the brain. 
Now, it is important, though, morphine, along with imperidine, they have active metabolites, and these metabolites are excreted to the renal system. So you want to be mindful when you're giving these medications to somebody that has renal failure. Just know that dialysis may not be able to clear them as fast, and these these metabolites, especially of morphine, is going to be M3G and M6G, and they are able to enter the central nervous system and cause that respiratory depression. So while morphine itself is the least lipophilic, just keep in mind that if you give it to a patient that is having renal failure, they're not going to be able to break down the active metabolites or excrete the active metabolites of morphine. And those metabolites can enter the CNS. And if you have somebody with renal failure, that's going to take a while to get rid of that. It is going to cause some respiratory depression. Another drug, codeine. Codeine is a prodrug that is metabolized into an actin metabolite, which is morphine. So if you give codeine to somebody, once it's metabolized into that active metabolite, then you have morphine. And then again, all those same things I just talked about apply, where if you have somebody with renal failure, it'll be able to be prolonged with those metabolites as well. So lastly, with morphine, I want to touch on the fact that it is able to release histamine. And a couple other drugs in this category also release histamine. So codeine, for one, because codeine, like I just said, metabolizes into morphine. So both of those, plus you have meperidine and then oxycodone. So those four drugs in this class of medication is able to release histamine. So again, histamine, when it's released, is going to be able to cause an increase in heart rate and then some hypotension as well. So those are things you want to be watching out for. Meperidine has a metabolite, which is normaparidine, and this can enter into the CNS and cause seizures. So it's important that you remember that this has that metabolite, again, that can enter into the CNS. Meperidine is also a weak serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So you want to pay special attention, especially if you're writing PACU orders. You need to be aware of the other medications that the patient is taking. You don't want to give this with an MAOI because you could have a rapid increase in serotonin. And so this is something that you need to be just very aware of their medication list when you're ordering meperidine. Meperidine can be a nice option for PACU, mainly because of its anti-shivering effects, its kappa binding. And like we mentioned earlier, that that has the ability to reduce shivering. Uh, you should also know that meperidine looks like atropine in its structure. So you can sometimes see tachycardia, mydriasis, and dry mouth similar to what you would see with atropine. Hydromorphone is a semi-synthetic opioid. It can be used for renal failure patients. It has a similar profile to morphine, but it is more potent and is more lipid-soluble. I think the important thing, like Cole mentioned, with the patients who are, you know, at risk for renal failure or have renal disease or on dialysis, you have to take special care with thinking about what medications are going to have metabolites and which ones are going to be difficult to clear, especially with the kidney disease important to to note here, hydromorphone, like I said, is okay for renal failure patients. Remifentanil is hydrolyzed by plasma cholinesterases. This makes it a very fast off drug. It's highly lipophilic, but low volume of distribution simply because it is broken down so fast. You need to make sure that you have a longer acting med for when you discontinue remifentanil to cover those 
pain pathways because the rimifentanil, like I said, is going to be broken down by those plasma cholinesterase and is going to be gone. And you need something to be covering the pain pathways for that patient. You can even see opioid-induced hyperalgesia after you discontinue your remifentanil. So all the more, just make sure that you have your longer-acting medications already on and bridging before you would discontinue your remifentanil. And I want to touch on a point here too. So at my facility, oftentimes remifentanil is used in cases such as crany cases or cases where they're going to have different points of stimulation that you're going to be wanting to change the drip on this remifentanil. It's quick on, it's quick off. The problem is then, as Tanner mentioned, when you get to the recovery and you turn off this remifentanil before wake up, then if you don't have anything to cover that patient and they just had this long procedure, they may look hemodynamically stable and the pain is tolerable and you have them in a good spot at the end of the case. And then you get to recovery that remifentanil gets out of their system really quick. And it's a whole different picture. Not only does it wear off, but as Tanner mentioned, it can cause this opioid induced hyperalgesia where they're almost in more pain afterwards, just because now all that medicine is gone out of their system and all the receptors were so stimulated for so long that now it, it almost feels like they're in more pain. And so you really need to make sure if you're going to be using this medication that you're planning ahead and trying to time how you bridge to other forms of pain management so that they don't have this, uh, this gap while you're getting them to recovery. Now they're in a lot of pain. Now you're trying to play catch up again. So just keep that in mind if you're going to be using this drug. It, it's great to keep them hemodynamically stable. It's very quick on. It's very quick off. So you're able to titrate to the blood pressure a lot better, but just keep in mind that you have to plan for when you come off into recovery. So the next drug we want to talk about is alfentanil. So this is a fast-acting drug as well, and it's due to a very low pKa of 6.5 compared to some of other uh, drugs in this class of medication. If you have a low pKa, I guess in simplest terms, it's going to make more of that drug in an unionized form. So whenever you give a drug, some of it is going to become ionized, some of it is going to be unionized. When you have a drug that is unionized, that means it's able to cross a lipid membrane. When you get something that's ionized, it's less likely to cross the lipid membrane. So for the fact that this is a low pKa, which means more of the medication is going to be unionized, that means more of it can cross over through lipid membranes, cross over the blood-brain barrier, and it can cause more respiratory depression. Another drug that you should keep in mind if you're going to give alfentanil is if the patient is on erythromycin, it can cause a prolongation of that metabolism. So again, you're going to be more at risk of having further respiratory depression if you give alfentanil to somebody who's on erythromycin. Another medication we want to talk about is methadone. So this is, again, a mu agonist. It's also an NMDA antagonist. And we're going to talk about that receptor later when we get to ketamine. That's that's another drug that affects the NMDA receptor. Um, so methadone also is going to inhibit monoamine reuptake. So just keep that in mind if you're going to be giving methadone to a patient on MAOI, that it's also going to inhibit that monoamine reuptake. Additionally, methadone is going to increase your QT interval. So you have possible torsades. So keep that in mind that if you're going to be giving methadone, be watching their rhythm strip. So what's important about methadone is that most patients that are on this are going to be using it for chronic pain. So you have less euphoria than other opioids. It has a very long half-life comparatively. So it's less frequently dosed. You don't need to give it quite as often, which is why it's better for the chronic pain. And that's 
that's really because of the fact that it has extensive protein binding. So it's able to last a lot longer and, and not be broken down as fast compared to other of these medications. So for this reason, I, I actually know a few people as well that will give methadone for open heart procedures. I know a lot of people use Sufenta just because of the high potency. I've also heard of a couple of people that use methadone at the beginning of an open heart procedure just because it lasts a lot longer than the other ones and they're able to provide that pain relief for a lot longer period. And, and again, as we're going through these, there's no one right way to be able to use these in your anesthetic. There, there's a bunch of different ways to provide a a high quality anesthetic using these medications. But I do know a couple people that use methadone for that purpose because it's longer that they'll use it in a either a long, painful, stimulating case, specifically like an open heart procedure um, that I've seen it work pretty well on. A couple more that we want to talk about here. The next one that we want to discuss is tramadol. This is a synthetic codeine. It works as a mu agonist. It also will inhibit norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake. For that reason, Keep in mind that this can cause seizures in patients, so uh, just be mindful of that. The next one, the most commonly used opioid, is fentanyl. This is something that you know in your practice. I'm sure that you are very, very, very comfortable with giving fentanyl. It's something that we give, you know, routinely, almost in every single case. Keep in mind that it does cause dose-dependent analgesia and respiratory depression and sedation. It's highly lipid-soluble. So as you know, it has a fast onset. It has a prolonged elimination in elderly patients and also in neonates. You may also find this useful to be used with epidurals. You can also use this intrathecal if you're doing like a C-section or if you're just doing, you know, a spinal four, an orthocase or something like that. You can add a little bit of fentanyl here to your intrathecal dose. It can be used for a PCA, a patch, et cetera. There's many ways that we can give fentanyl to our patients, but keep in mind those few facts that I already mentioned about the uh, dose-dependent analgesia respiratory respiratory depression, and also sedation. So now we want to talk about some of the medications that are partially an opioid agonist slash antagonist. So that kind of sounds like two opposites and how can they both be the same? Well, this is because of their mechanism. You have some of these receptors that are being agonists and some of these receptors that are being antagonists, whether you're talking about the mu receptor, the kappa receptor, the delta receptor, et cetera. And so because it has this kind of both sides of the coin, if you will, these opioid agonists slash antagonists, they are analgesics, but they have less potency than the other ones that we've talked about. So they have a quote, a stealing effect. So you can't quite give like if you continue to give more and more and more of this medicine, it'll it'll cap off at a certain uh, amount and it won't continue to have, as Tanner just mentioned with, with fentanyl, this dose-dependent analgesia. You have this ceiling where it kind of levels off at. And so it has a lesser potential for dependence from this from this standpoint, and it has a decreased risk of having ventilatory depressive effects as well. So for this reason, these drugs are commonly used with chronic pain. If you have any patient that is an opioid addict patient that is trying to wean themselves off of opioids, this is this is medication, a uh, class of medicine that would be used for that. So a couple examples of this class of medications. The first one is buprenorphine. 
and this agonizes the mu receptor. It's very long acting. So we want patients to stop this about two to four weeks before surgery. And why would you want somebody to do that? Well, if it's also a partial antagonist, it actually will hinder the amount of pain relief you can get during the procedure by giving other opioids such as fentanyl. And so if somebody is on buprenorphine all the way up to the case and you give these other opioids, you're not going to be able to handle their pain quite as well. Also keep in mind that buprenorphine is not fully going to be reversed by Narcan. And we're going to talk about Narcan here very shortly about how we reverse these opioids if you're you're causing all these respiratory depression issues, et cetera. Uh, but just keep in mind, because you have both the agonist and the partial antagonist as well, it's not going to be able to be fully reversed by that Narcan. Another example is butorphanol, and this is, again, an agonist at the kappa receptor, but an antagonist at the mu receptor. So just keep in mind, they're going to have both sides of the spectrum, depending on what receptor we're talking about here. Another one is nalbufene, which can reverse fentanyl-caused respiratory depression because it antagonizes the mu receptor. It's actually nice from that standpoint, because if you have given too much fentanyl, it causes too much respiratory depression because it's agonizing the mu receptor. And now we give this medication, which antagonizes the mu receptor, you're able to kind of reverse some of those effects as well. So lastly, before we talk about the reversals and we get into Narcan and naloxone, I want to just mention here briefly that opioids can cause skeletal muscle rigidity, mainly in the chest, the abdomen, and the throat. And if you give too much dose of this and you have this uh, symptomatic response, treatment is going to include either A, intubation, and B, paralysis. Theoretically, you can give Narcan to reverse the effects of the opioids and all that rigidity that it's causing. But if you're at the beginning of a case or you're in a case, you don't really want to give the Narcan because then you're not going to be able to adequately provide pain relief through opioids going forward throughout the case. So it's better just to simply get the patient intubated, get them paralyzed to be able to relax uh, that skeletal muscle rigid rigidity from that standpoint. Now, when the patient does have, though, this muscle rigidity, I've seen it once in a case, actually when I was in school, uh, and it can cause an increase in O2 consumption, and it causes a decrease in the thoracic compliance. So I had a dramatic swing in my ventilation pressures in terms of how I was able to ventilate the patient. Their peak pressures were up a lot higher. They were a lot harder to keep their SATs high enough. Uh, just keep that in mind that this is a potential result of if you're giving a patient a lot of opioids. Uh, and because of this as well, if you have a patient with all this rigidity in their chest and abdomen and their throat, you're going to have an increase in their central venous pressure because you have blood backing up. So from the pulmonary artery pressure standpoint, the pulmonary vascular resistance, all of this is going to be increased and backed up which can then even cause an increase in the intracranial pressure. So just keep in mind that if this happens, it does need to be uh, treated and corrected quickly. Next on this topic, let's talk about reversals. So the main one that we think of when we think of reversals is Narcan or naloxone is a opioid antagonist, mainly at the mu receptor. It also is effective at the kappa and delta receptors as well. Metabolized in the liver, shorter duration than many of the opioids that we're giving. So keep this in mind. You may think you're out of the woods by giving your initial dose and it seems like the patient has had some improvement. If that opioid that they are taking or that you have given them is a longer acting opioid than your Narcan, then you may need to give additional dosage or maybe even consider an effusion at that point. 
Some side effects of giving Narcan, you can see tachycardia, hypertension. You can also see some nausea, vomiting. Keep in mind, this will also cross the placenta as well. Another reversal that we should talk about is methylnaltrexone. Keep in mind, this cannot pass the blood-brain barrier, so it can't reverse respiratory depression. Depending on what symptoms you're seeing from the dose of opioids, this may or may not be an indication, but it's a pretty common reason that you'd be wanting to give Narcan for respiratory depression. So keep in mind, this does not cross the blood-brain barrier. It will not be effective for reversing that complication. Nomophene is a longer action than naloxone, so this would be a better choice if you have somebody who is a chronic abuser of a narcotic. You can also use naltrexone. This is also for chronic users of opioids. It's also used many times for alcohol withdrawal simply because it has the extended release. So again, good here for alcohol withdrawal as well. Those are the reversals that we wanted to talk about. We've gone through basic anatomy. We've gone through the receptors. We've talked about the different medications, the different patients that you may or may not want to use these medications in. Think specifically about uh, you know, kidney disease and different metabolites. Now we've gone through reversals and talked about the different options that you can give patients. The next thing that we want to talk about is adjunctive medications. So these are medications that we can use that will work differently, can work in conjunction, can synergize, can work together with the opioids that we're giving. And it's important that we walk through several of these here to understand their mechanism of action and why they might be useful for us when we're trying to address the pain pathways for our patients. The first one we want to talk about is ketamine. To understand this a little bit, let's go back to a little bit of anatomy. So we have these NMDA receptors, which are channels that when bound by glutamate, allow positive ions to flow into the cell, which will cause depolarization. And that's where you get your action potential. Ketamine works by antagonizing these NMDA receptors in the brain and in the pain pathways. And this is what blocks those pain signals. It's metabolized by P450. It has an active metabolite, which is norketamine, and that is going to be excreted through the renal system. It can make patients feel separated from the environment, but it allows them to maintain their reflexes. We call this dissociative anesthesia. So if you're giving a patient just ketamine, you'll see this very commonly where they are very separated from the environment. They has just basically this disconnected state. They're able to maintain their respiratory status and maintain their cardiac status, maintain those reflexes while still getting that dissociative anesthesia. It's important to think about giving a benzo prior to giving ketamine simply to help with emergence delirium or hallucinization to help with emergence delirium or hallucinations. You're more at risk for delirium if you're over 15 years old, if you're a female, or if the dose of ketamine is more than two milligrams per kilogram, or if you've had a previous psychiatric disorder. It increases the SNS. Usually that's going to be okay, but it can cause some issues if the patient has coronary artery disease it can increase your cardiac output, increase your heart rate, SVR, PVR. So be especially careful in patients with right ventricular failure, keeping in mind that this will increase the SNS. It does cause bronchodilation. So 
we often think of this for patients that have respiratory problems, very good for patients with asthma or patients who are wheezing, helps maintain their respiratory drive unless you're giving an induction dose of ketamine, in which case it would reduce their respiratory drive if you're giving an induction dose of ketamine. Otherwise, airway reflexes should remain intact. A nice medication to give, especially if you think of you know, patients that have complicated respiratory status, maybe you're doing a colonoscopy or something where you're needing them to maintain their own airway and you're wanting to use something adjunctive with propofol. This is something that's nice to help with the anesthesia, but then also maintain their own airway. It does not significantly change or shift the CO2 response curve. It does increase both oral and pulmonary secretions. Many times you'll also pair this with glycopyrrolate just to reduce the amount of secretions that the patient will be encountering. Last point I want to mention here for ketamine is that it increases the CMRO2, cerebral blood flow, ICP, interocular pressure, and also your EEG activity. You should also be aware if the patient has a history of seizures as ketamine could potentiate the risk for having a seizure if they have that history. Ketamine does not decrease BIS even when they're unconscious. So keep in mind that if you're using a BIS monitor, that your values can be altered when you give ketamine. It's important if you're working with a monitor tech too, if you're having monitoring done during a procedure, if you're going to be giving ketamine, you should also be mentioning to them when you give it in your dose, just so they can keep that in line with their monitoring. Yeah, before we move on, a lot of times ketamine in our field is used in a couple different ways, either one, simply just as an adjunct therapy to opioids. So typically, if, if you're doing a big procedure, you're expecting a lot of pain from it. I've seen ketamine used a lot in addition to the opioids just to provide that extra pain relief. Secondly, as Tanner mentioned, because it doesn't decrease the respiratory drive as other sedatives do, it's a great drug to give, especially if you have a patient with either a high risk of having obstructive airway for a MAC procedure, or maybe you have a very sick heart patient and it, you don't want to decrease their cardiac reserve with some of the other sedatives. This is a great drug to give for that case as well. So ketamine is a great adjunct to use either in addition to the fentanyl or as something to provide during a MAC procedure to sedate the patient, but do it in a safe enough way for either their respiratory or their cardiac standpoint. So another medication we want to talk about that can be used in addition to any opioids that you're giving is Presidex. And Presidex is a selective alpha-2 agonist. So what this means is it's going to block the presynaptic release of catecholamines by hyperpolarizing the cell. So when you hyperpolarize the cell, you're preventing that cell from being depolarized and sending the signal through. So as a result, it's going to decrease the amount of cyclic AMP or CAMP that is being released. And also will inhibit the locus coriolis in the ponds of the brain, which is where you get the sedative effect as well. So you block both the pain and you also provide some sedative effects. So that's why it's a great drug to use because it kind of gives us both of the outcomes here. So now if you give a bolus dose, so you can give uh, one microgram per kilogram as a loading dose over about 10 minutes. And typically if you're using this as an adjunct, you keep it, typically try to keep it under about 0.5 micrograms per kilogram 
and then a maintenance dose of around 0.4 to 0.7 micrograms per kilogram per hour. And again, this varies widely depending on where you practice, what kind of case you're doing, whether you're keeping this patient on this trip going to the ICU, whether it's just during your case, if you're using monitoring, there's so many different factors that play into this. But in, in a more general standpoint, those are some of the doses, is the dosages that we see. It's a P450 enzyme metabolism. So keep in mind here that if you have any issues or alterations with the P450 enzyme from the liver, it will alter the duration of, of Presidex that's going to last in the body. Now, typically the main side effect that we see, and I think a lot of us have seen this before with giving Presidex, is going to be bradycardia and then some hypotension. Now, it can cause some hypertension, usually when you give a rapid bolus of this. And this is due to peripherally, you're stimulating the alpha-2 receptors out in those peripheral areas, which can result in some early vasoconstriction. Then you have the central stimulation that comes and overcomes this peripheral stimulation, and you start to have that hypotension. So if you do give a rapid bolus, just keep in mind, the peripheral stimulation of those alpha-2 receptors can cause a quick hypertensive effect before you cause the normal hypotension and bradycardia. This drug is also nice sim similarly to ketamine because it doesn't cause respiratory depression. So this is a great drug to use if you're trying to either A, sedate somebody, but also cause some type of adjunctive pain relief and not alter their respiratory drive in order to continue to ventilate. So again, a lot of times this is used during MAC procedures or even as a drip in the ICU to keep a patient sedated. Now, it does decrease the cerebral blood flow due to cerebral vasoconstriction. So it's going to cause some increased vasoconstriction, but it's not really going to change the intracranial pressure or the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen, which is nice. Now, its, it's sedative effects resembles natural sleep uh, rather than if you get propofol and it, it, it completely puts somebody under. This is, depending on the dose that you're giving here, more resembles a natural sleep. So it's less potent from a sedative effect compared to propofol, but it, it's due to a decreased SNS tone and a decreased level of arousal. Uh, again, it decreases the emergent delirium that you have. So oftentimes, uh, CRNAs will give Presidex towards the end of a case when you're about ready to wake somebody up just to minimize the emergence delirium, especially in the pediatric population. Another great thing about Presidex is it has some anti-shivering effects as well, and then some analgesia from the alpha-2 receptors in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, which is, again is why it's a great adjunct to use compared to any opioids that you're giving. Because for one, it'll decrease the anti-shivery when the patient wakes up. I like to give a little bit before I wake somebody up from a general to take them to the recovery room because it also provides some type of pain relief as well. And again, as Tanner mentioned with all these drugs, if you're going to be doing a monitoring case, a neuromonitoring case, be talking with the monitoring tech that's there about when you're giving this medication, how much you're giving of it. Um, but the nice thing about Presidex is it, it does not impair evoked potentials. But again, talk with whoever you're working with. Uh, they all have their preferences on what drugs they would like or, or not like. Another one to mention here is magnesium. Magnesium is not a primary analgesic, but it can be used like these others as an adjunct to decrease your need for opioids. Magnesium sulfate has been shown to blunt the body's reflexes to noxious stimuli. It decreases the amount of muscle relaxant that you'll need as well for your anesthetic. So it's nice for that standpoint as well. Like ketamine, it will block the NMDA receptors. It also acts as a calcium channel blocker at the presynaptic nerve terminals, which will reduce the amount of acetylcholine, which is released 
this potentiates the action of those non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. For dosages, we can usually give a loading dose of 30 to 50 milligrams per kilogram with a maintenance drip of 6 to 20 milligrams per kilogram an hour. You can also just give this as a single bolus dose up front for about 2 to 4 grams, which will also work nicely as well. You can give small doses of magnesium sulfate to local anesthetics for spinal anesthesia, and this will prolong the duration of action of your spinal. So keep in mind that also is a potential there as well. But you need to be mindful of toxicity levels. So normal serum level is 0.7 to 1.1 millimole per liter. Remember, some of the symptoms of toxicity include loss of deep tendon reflexes. You can see dizziness, respiratory arrest at levels above 6 millimoles per liter, and then you can even see cardiac arrest when you're above the 8 millimole per liter. Some of these symptoms are going to be hard to identify while a patient is under general anesthesia. Obviously, the more significant ones here are going to be seen whether they're under anesthesia or not. But again, if you want more information on this, you can go see our electrolyte presentation that goes into this more in depth. So next, we want to talk about lidocaine. Lidocaine is something, in a drip form specifically that we want to talk about, is something that I really did not use in my training very much at all. But at the facility that I practice at currently, it's used a lot as part of our ERAS protocols for a lot of big belly cases, especially. And it's something that I, I've done more research on now that I've started using it. And it's something that I, I really enjoy using. I, I, I think it's a great adjunct to use. And so the point of it being is to minimize the amount of opioids that are going to be needed both intraoperatively and then also postoperatively. So how lidocaine works is it blocks the sodium channels inside the neurons to minimize the amount of pain that's being um, transmitted through those neurons from one to the other. Additionally, a lidocaine will block the systemic inflammatory responses due to the surgical stress. It'll also preserve bowel motility, which is why it's great in these open belly bowel cases can be used, like I said, in these longer abdominal cases where you're going to be anticipating an increased opioid need. And what happens is if you give an upfront bolus of around 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, usually you can just use this as part of your induction dose prior to intubation. Just make sure you're giving at least 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilo. And then you can run an infusion between 1 and 4 milligrams per minute. This is usually depending on the weight of the patient. I will say the higher dosage of this, if you're getting up to the three to four milligrams per minute range, it is common to see a lot of hypotension with this and you do have to back off a little bit or at least have some neosinephrine or some pressure support that you're going to be running. But often for the lower doses of one to two milligrams per minute, I don't see too much of that hypotension with it. Now for patients staying in the hospital after their procedure, the lidocaine drip often can be reduced when you get to recovery and, and often ran for the next 24 hours after the procedure. And this provides a lot of pain relief in the post-operative setting throughout those first 24 hours. And so also, if you're going to be continuing this lidocaine drip in the post-operative period, it does also decrease the risk of a laryngospasm upon extubation as well, just reducing the airway reactivity, if not slightly. It doesn't have a great effect at this, but it again would not increase the risk of having a spasm on extubation. And so continuing that lidocaine drip all the way through in your recovery does minimize the risk of that as well. So with all these medications that we've talked about, choosing whether you give one versus the other or multiple of them for a specific case 
is obviously going to vary from patient to patient and case to case. The type of procedure is one of the things that should aid in determining which adjunctive medication you use. For example, lidocaine is better for soft tissue surgeries, such as mastectomies, abdominal surgeries, etc. And ketamine is better for more visceral pain. So depending on the procedure you're doing and what kind of pain you expect them to be in will help you determine which medication to give, as well as patient hemodynamics. So for example, let's say a patient has heart rate in the upper 40s to begin with, and they're already bradycardic. Dexmedetomidine or Presidex would be an example of one of those medications you might want to limit the amount of just because that can also cause further bradycardia. So you might lean towards giving one of the other adjunctive medication choices in a patient with an already bradycardic heart. Last two things we want to talk about here are peripheral nerve blocks and then neuroaxial anesthesia. We go into much more detail on both of these topics in other discussions, but it's important while we're talking about pain control and pain medications, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about these nerve blocks and their actual anesthesia as well to talk about different ways that we can control a patient's pain. So peripheral nerve blocks, obviously, depending on the anatomical location of the procedure, then you will choose the appropriate nerve block accordingly. This is going to be used to decrease sensation to the surgical site and ultimately decrease the amount of opioids that we would need to use to manage this patient's pain. Let's just say we're doing a total shoulder then an interscaling block would be a great choice to reduce the amount of sensation that patient's going to feel in the shoulder. It's also going to last for several hours after the procedure to give them longer acting pain control. So again, it's not going to completely take away the need for narcotics for different pain medications, but it will decrease the need for opioids during the case. And like I said, you're going to have that prolonged effect of that decreased sensation long after the procedure. And so this can reduce the amount of pain medication they'll need to take, again, not only during the procedure, but then during their immediate recovery as that pain control is still being taken care of by that peripheral nerve block. We can also place a catheter to even prolong that duration of the nerve block even longer. And that with this case, you can get several days out of this where you're having that local anesthetic just slowly infiltrated into the area using that catheter. Again, we go into much more detail on all of this in our peripheral nerve block episode. So you can go ahead and check those out for more details. It's not something that we're wanting to spend a lot of time on this specific talk. You know, the main part of this, we wanted to go over the opioids, the pathway, the anatomy. But again, it's important that we mention this here as we're talking about pain control. And the last thing we want to talk about as adjunctive therapy is going to be the use of neuroaxial anesthesia. So this is going to be our spinals, our epidurals. So in addition to the peripheral nerve blocks, these can be used to reduce the need for any opioids that you might need to give intraoperatively. A great example of a case that you would want to do this on would either be a C-section, a spinal for a total knee procedure would be a great option. Um, anything that they're going to be working on the, either the lower abdominal or lower extremity area would be uh, a potential option for doing a spinal or an epidural. Now, depending on the length of the procedure, you can use various local anesthetics in this neuroaxial um, block. And 
basically what you're going to be deciding to do, uh, depending on the various local anesthetic that you give, is going to depend on the amount of time that you're going to be reducing both the motor and the sensory function, anywhere from a few minutes up to a few hours. And as a result, the patient's body is going to have a limited surgical stress or pain response intraoperatively. Now, the spinal typically wears off within several hours of placement. Again, this is depending on what local anesthetic that you gave. And that at which point then the patient is going to require additional pain management interventions. So in some situations, a catheter is going to be a better option. As Tanner just mentioned, you can place a catheter in that spot to provide that local anesthetic infusing at a longer time. And this is an example of an epidural will be a great option here, especially if you have maybe a patient who's laboring because you don't know how long they're going to be laboring for. So you can continue to infuse medicine through that catheter rather than just simply doing a single shot medicine through the spinal. And like I said, do keep in mind though, that if this is a procedure where the patient is going to be expected to have pain lasting, you know, for a couple of days after the procedure or even longer, um, while intraoperatively we're able to handle their pain by doing this neuroactual anesthesia, keep in mind that you do need to, to have a plan in, in place for how you're going to be bridging and handling that patient's pain once that neuroactual anesthetic wears off. Um, so these are just a few of the different ways that we can use adjunctive therapy. Again, this is not an all-encompassing review of all the different ways that we can provide adjunctive therapy, but hopefully these are some of the more common ways that will resonate with you, either give you a couple different ideas or options on, on how you can limit the amount of opioids that you're using in your cases, or at least provide additional pain management from them. And again, like I talked about earlier, uh, there are lots of other forms of opioid medications that we can give. These are the more common ones that we've talked about. And as Tanner mentioned throughout this talk, we do have individual presentations specifically on the opioids themselves, the reversals, the adjuncts, they go in a little bit more detail. But for the sake of time of this talk, we wanted to give an overarching view of, of the whole process, both the opioids, how you reverse them, how you minimize the side effects of them, and then what are some different medications that you can give to reduce the need for the amount of opioids that you would give.